babies together. And they studied the way that the mom connected with her infant child, the moment, uh, connected with her infant child. And that moment of connection, when mom and the baby looked into each other's eyes, mysteriously, mom's heartbeat began to beat in rhythm with the, uh, with the infant. Within milliseconds, there was connection that, that happened. So imagine with me two heartbeats beating as one. It's one of those things that sort of blows your mind when you think about it. How can two people be so connected that their hearts beat together? The researchers don't even know how to explain it. But God has wired us to be connected, not just to each other, but to him. So what would happen if our heart beat in rhythm with God's heart? What would happen if what broke his heart broke our heart? What gave him great joy gave us great joy. The Bible talks about having a heart after God's heart. God picked David as king because he was a man after God's own heart. The book of Jeremiah says, I want to give those leaders a heart after my heart so that they can lead the people as I would lead them. Second Chronicles 16 and 9 explains it this way. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And we'll see no greater example of someone who walks with God's heart than Jesus himself, father and son. As Jesus walked this earth, his heart beat in rhythm with the father's heart. And today we're going to see Jesus' heartbeat as he has a divine appointment with this woman who's in desperate need of redemption. And just like this woman, Jesus wants our heart to beat in rhythm with his. And that's the title of this morning's message. Jesus wants our heart to beat in rhythm with his. Now, usually we would read, we would read the, uh, the text, but it's kind of long. It's 42, uh, 42 verses. So I think what we'll do, we'll just, just read the text as we go through the sermon. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to be in the pulpit this morning, Lord. I, I'm, uh, it's, it's, it's an honor and a privilege, Lord, and, and I'm humbled to be asked to be here this morning. When I look back at all those men that have been, that have been volunteering to, to fulfill this pulpit, Lord. Father, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill this place, would fill me, Lord, to, to, so I would deliver your message, Lord. Not my message, but your message. Help me to step out of the way, Lord, so that your words, your words will go forward and not mine. I pray that people would be, be changed, that no one here would leave the same as when they walked in. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we see in verse 4 this line that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. But what does that mean, that he had to pass through Samaria? Well, between Judea and Galilee, uh, where most of Jesus' ministry took place, there was this region called Samaria. And any well-respecting well, well Jew wouldn't go through that neighborhood. See, even though it was the, the shortest distance between the two points, every Jew would go around. Why was that? Well, because of centuries of hatred and mistrust between Jews and Samaritans, it wasn't a safe place to, to go through Samaria. Jews weren't allowed to eat with Samaritans or, or go into their homes, so they would just go around. But... Uh, but John records that Jesus had to go through this place. And he's going to take the disciples, he's going to take the disciples through this very uncomfortable space, all because he had a divine appointment with one woman, 
a sinner with a questionable reputation, uh, an outcast from our own people, hated by the Jews. You see, but just like Jesus, we can't allow ethnic and cultural boundaries to keep us from sharing the gospel. We can't allow ethnic and cultural boundaries to keep us from sharing the gospel. Look at verse 7 and continuing. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't, have to, so I won't be thirsty. You have to come here to draw water. Now let's suppose that Jesus was staying in Bethany. The Bible doesn't say this, but let's suppose that he was staying in Bethany with his friends Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Bethany was a small town in Judea, and Jesus spent a lot of time with his three friends, in the home of his three friends. Well, from Bethany to Sychar, where Jacob's well was, was about a, about a 20-mile walk. And Jesus is probably tired and, and thirsty from his morning journey. And he goes straight for this well, and he waits there for, while the disciples go into town to buy food. And this woman comes out at noon. And Jesus said to her in verse 7, Give me a drink. And she most likely took a bucket of tanned goat skin. That was usually the most common way to draw water back in the day. And probably somewhere between verses 8 and 9, she gave Jesus a cool drink. The Samaritan woman said to him in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? But Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, if you were a rabbi or a devout Jewish man, you wouldn't speak to a woman in public. In fact, you wouldn't even speak to your own wife or daughter in public. There was even this group of Pharisees, they were called the Kizai. It meant bruised or bleeding. See, these Pharisees were so sanctimonious that they looked down and they wouldn't look at any woman. And as a result, they were bumping into things and hurting themselves. So this woman must have been thinking, what the heck is going on here? She must have been surprised, not only because a Jewish man was talking to her, but that anybody was talking to her. See, the woman was not only despised by the so-called religious people of the day, but the people of her town also. Why was that? Well, she was a woman, and she was a Samaritan. And as we'll find out a little later in our text, this was a woman of a questionable reputation. In chapter 3 uh, of, of John, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. He was a big-shot religious leader back in the day about the new birth. He told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now he's speaking to someone who was scorned by the religious elite. But Jesus didn't allow social, racial, or religious boundaries to get in the way. Jesus pointed, to her, pointed out to her that she needed to understand three important facts about him. Who he is, what he has to offer, 
and how she could receive it. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we're called to share about God's greatness to those around us too. We're to present a testimony about, about the truth that we've experienced with everyone. Do we allow ethnic and cultural boundaries to keep us from sharing the gospel? Jesus didn't. Think about our world today. There are people out there who are despised and looked down on. The alcoholic, the drug addict, the homeless. How about people that don't look like us or dress like us? Do we, do we love them and care about them? Do we show them the love of Jesus? You see, Jesus went out of his way to show this woman the love and the care of God. Well, Jesus takes his cool, refreshing drink uh, from the well, and he hands the pitcher with a ladle back to the lady, and, he asks, and she asks, don't you think it's strange that you're speaking to me? And Jesus says to her in verse 10, I imagine with a bit of a smile on his face, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Notice how Jesus drew this woman into the conversation. He made her curious. And that's something that we should do when we talk to people about Jesus. When we share our testimony, tell them what Jesus has done in our life. Make them curious about the things of God. You see, Jesus piqued her interest about what he had to give. Now, when Jesus mentioned living water, she thought it meant one thing, but Jesus meant something entirely different. See, living water in that language uh, was a water that comes up from a spring or, or flowing water because it's water in motion. She thinks, oh, wow, there must be a spring around here somewhere so I don't have to come to this well anymore. I want that kind of water. But Jesus means a completely different kind of water altogether. The woman said to him in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to everyone who drinks this water, no doubt gesturing to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will, uh, the water that I give him will, will well up in him, it will become a spring, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Jesus, uh, sir, Give me this water so I won't be thirsty or have to come to here to draw water. See, she continues thinking about physical water, but Jesus begins to explain about spiritual water. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Ma'am, I'm speaking about spiritual things here. The water that I give satisfies the soul. I'm not talking about your physical thirst. You see, Jesus was using her physical thirst as an illustration of the spiritual thirst that every person has. See, God has made us in such a way that uh, we thirst after something more. God has created us with something inside of us that, that can't be satisfied by material things or the, 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 the so-called American dream. And this woman has gone back to the proverbial well over and over again. Maybe I could find my satisfaction in a man. Maybe I could find a man where I can be loved and not be rejected. Right? The cry of every human soul, to belong, to know that people aren't going to leave us or abandon us. Right? We can't be satisfied by all the, thing that, all the things that the world uh, tries to entice us with. See, if we pull a bucket from the wrong well, it doesn't matter what's in the bucket. Right? It's not going to satisfy. 
Think of people who have all the money, fame, and fortune. They're empty inside because God has made each and every one of us with a thirst that can't be satisfied by those things. Tom Brady, after winning his third Super Bowl in 2005, said in an interview in 60 Minutes, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and think there's something greater out there for me? I think, God, there, there has to be more than this. This can't be all it's, it's cracked up to be. Now Brady has seven Super Bowl rings, and I bet he's still empty because I just read an article that he's thinking about coming out of retirement again. Friends, people are thirsty. They want. They long. They search in the, the next hookup, the next relationship, the next drink or the next drug. Right? But the tragedy of what they're, the tragedy of what they're doing is, is like drinking salt water. It's going to leave them thirstier and eventually kill them. See, only what Jesus gives satisfies to the deepest, uh, the deepest level of our, our heart and our soul, and our spirit. Jesus says, you come to me, and I'll satisfy that thirst. You come to me, and I'll give you that living water. You come to me, and everything else in your life will change. See, Jesus is the eternal thirst quencher. And we begin to drink of that living water when we're convicted of our sin, acknowledge that we're sinners who've broken God's moral law, law repent, and place our faith in Jesus Christ. It's called conviction. And without conviction, there can be no repentance. Without conviction, there can be no repentance. Look at verse four, uh, 16, I'm sorry. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, Jesus said to her you are right in saying I have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Wow, what an awkward moment that must have been. Right? <clears throat> and at first, <clears throat> at first glance, we might think, wow, Jesus is being so cruel. He's being straight up mean with this woman. <clears throat> I mean, he's describing a eternal life and what she could do to quench her thirst. And then he's like, go call your husband. See, obviously Jesus knows she doesn't have a husband. She's had five husbands, and the guy she's living with now isn't a husband. See, Jesus is putting his finger right on her deepest pain, disappointment, and shame. That's why she's at the well all by herself at noontime. See, this woman, as she walks by, the, uh, uh, by, she walks by in town, every woman grabs her husband and pulls her close and says, stay away from her. So why would Jesus put her finger on her pain? It's because anything less wouldn't lead to the transformation or the change that this woman needed. You see, when Jesus puts his finger on our pain, our shame, our disappointment, he wants to heal us and bring about transformation. Is Jesus being cruel? No more than a doctor who, who performs surgery to save our life. Right? Unless he removes the tumor, we're going to die. Will the operation be painful? Probably. But weighed against death, this is part of the healing process. Mark in chapter 2, verse 17, describes his mission this way. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. See, in order for the doctor to heal us, sometimes we're going to have some pain. But in the same way, the great physician of our soul 
has to cut us with the truth about ourselves so we, in order to heal us of the sickness of our sin. You see, the only way to prepare the soil of the heart is to plow it up with conviction. See, his instruction to call her husband made her very uncomfortable. So she doesn't want to go into detail, so she simply replies, I have no husband. Now, that was true, but it wasn't the whole story. You see, she knew she was hiding something, but what she doesn't know, Jesus knows it too. And so he proceeds to reveal the rest of the story. You have had five husbands, and the man you're living with now, he's not your husband. This is the ultimate reality check. And I think the words of Jesus are kind of like a, a verbal slap in the face. And yet it was the most loving, caring thing he could have done for her. See, until we realize how detestable our sin and our willful, our willful disobedience to God is, we can't be saved. See, Jesus sees behind a mask. He knows the truth. But without conviction, there can be no repentance. And without repentance, there can be no salvation. Without repentance, there can be no salvation. The woman said to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to a woman, believe me, the hour was coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour was coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship it must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus never met her, but he told her all about, all about her life. And she's saying, that was strange. He knows all about me, and now I feel really uncomfortable. What happens when we start to talk to people about something in a person's life and they become very uncomfortable? What do they do? They change the subject. And this woman, she's changing lanes without signaling. <clears throat> I mean, it's so abrupt. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. But to make his point, Jesus doesn't take the bait. And what do we mean by that? Well, typically when we're having conversations about salvation or Jesus People are going to provide uh, distractions and arguments and defense, defense, mechanisms, defense mechanisms to get us off course. Think about what this woman is throwing at Jesus, right? She's trying to get out of the conversation. So what does she do? She brings up gender. She brings up race. Then she brings up politics and religion. A good thing people don't do that today, huh? <laughs> yeah. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. <clears throat> See, when there's a spiritual thirst that goes beyond politics and religion and race and gender and all those things that people want to talk about, we have to always bring the conversation back to Jesus. Keep the main thing the main thing. The Bible gives clear instruction for Christians. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 23 and Titus chapter 3 and verse 9. Christians don't get involved in stupid and foolish arguments that lead to quarrels that distract people from coming to repentance and the grace of God that will save their soul in the end. God's servants should not quarrel, but kindly instruct people to repentance. Right now, it's clear to this woman that she's met a most unusual guy. 
because he knows her past. She thinks he must be a prophet. And since he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan, she begins to engage in this theological debate. See, in that day, Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans, they worshipped on Mount Gerizim. So she wants to know which is the right place to worship. See, Jesus doesn't bother debating with her. He simply, he simply tells her that a time is coming when geography isn't going to matter. He doesn't condemn her for her, for her faulty, she doesn't condemn her for her faulty theology. He doesn't say, lady, come on, you worship on Mount Gerizim. That's ridiculous. Right? That wouldn't go, that wouldn't have went too good, and it probably would have made her angry, and it, it, would, have, it would have ended the conversation. <clears throat> but the bottom line is we can't worship God unless we, we're truly saved, because we can't bow our knee to God in any way until we bow the knee to God in the command to obey the gospel of his son. Let me say that again. We can't worship God unless we're truly saved. Why? Because we can't bow our knee to God in any way until we've bowed the knee to God in a command to obey the gospel of his son. God wants worship that's based on truth and a, and a wholehearted personal commitment to him. See, true worship comes from the the love of God and the knowledge of Scripture, and it can and it can happen anywhere and everywhere. See, the, that's the vital point when it comes to sharing the gospel with people. Salvation isn't about praying a special prayer, walking an aisle, or any other ritual. And there's good news and bad news in that statement. The bad news is that religious activity really doesn't count. Like going to church, being baptized giving money, praying six times a day, trying to follow the commandments, having a quiet time every day. Those things are good, and as good as they are, and they really are good things. They don't count when it comes to God and salvation. The, the reason they don't count is because anyone can go through the motions and still have a heart that's filled with anger, bitterness, hatred, greed, and pride, and all those other things. See, the worship that God accepts must be based on, must be based on the truth of the gospel and offered to him from a humble heart. But there's an equally good statement, uh, good news in that statement. If what God wants is spirit and truth, anybody qualifies. Right? That's the good. It's, salvation isn't limited to the Jews. The, the good news is meant for everyone. It's God's equal access provision. See, salvation isn't about going to the right mountain. It's about going to Jesus for salvation. And anybody can do it anytime, anywhere. You see, being saved means that our, our sins no longer count, count against us toward an eternal death sentence. Right? Instead, we're forgiven by the grace of God and given the, the free gift of eternal life if we choose to accept it. See, friends, there are only two types of people in this world. The saints and the ain'ts. There's no in-between. You're either saved or you're not. But I think slowly the, the truth is dawning on this woman, and she's, had, she's heard that the Messiah will someday come to earth. Imagine her surprise when Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Wow. This is an amazing statement. Right here, he plainly claims to be the Messiah. And in, in the Greek, it reads something like this. The one who speaks to you, I am. Right, I am was the name that God revealed himself to Moses in, uh, in Exodus 3. Right? And we think of the, the seven I am statements in, the, in John's gospel. See, Jesus is claiming identity with God. No doubt this woman must have been blown away. 
Like she came for water in the middle of the day and she ended up meeting the water of life face to face and it changed her life forever. So what did she do? Well, she ran back to town and she told everybody, you could be forgiven and find this, this beautiful quenching of your deepest thirst if you just come to know Jesus. And the whole town believed. We should never underestimate the power of our testimony. We should never underestimate the power of our testimony. Look at verse 27 and following. When the disciples came back, just then the disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but nobody said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and ran back into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have, food, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, then he brought him something to eat. Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there were yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And he, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you the reap for which you did not labor. Others had labored and you have entered into that labor. Many, many, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard, we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, the disciples have no idea what's going on. They just see the tail end of the conversation and this woman running back into the city. And they're like, Jesus, why don't you eat something? We got one of your favorites, number three, filet of fish on leavened bread. We even supersized it. I got stuck. This reminds me of my Italian family, to tell you the truth. Valerie, and my daughter's doing it now too, and my sister-in-law, Grace Ann. Anytime something happens, and that may be true for all Italians, I, I, I'm not, I hope I'm not offending anybody, but when something's going on or something happens, the first thing they ask isn't, are you okay? The first thing they ask is, did you eat? <laughs> right? Did, did, you, did, did you eat? Right? Oh, my goodness, your father fell off the ladder. He's working in the yard. Get the cake and put the coffee on. <laughs> right? H honey, did you eat breakfast this morning? Come on and have some cake. We got pastries. Come on in. Right? So, so what was Jesus' favorite food, right? We, we read here that he liked this number three, the filet of fish on leavened bread. But what was Jesus' favorite food? Well, it says it right here in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So what was Jesus' favorite food? Soul food. I'm just reading into the text. Don't blame me. That was pretty bad, though, huh? We got of course that one out. So his, 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 he tells his disciples that nobody brought me food. Right now I'm doing the will of my father. 
And friends, there's nothing more satisfying in doing the work that God has called you to do, whatever that is for you. You know, God has called me into ministry to minister to these, these men that are struggling with alcohol and drugs and, and, and homelessness. And I tell you, there's, there's no feeling like it. I, I wish I could I just scoop them up and bring them all home. I'm sure Val would have something to say about that, but, but I tell you, it, it is, this is what happens when our heart starts beating in rhythm with Jesus. And what we see is Jesus is having this conversation about food. The woman is back in town. Come and see this person that told me everything I ever did. He's the Messiah. And so Jesus is looking out into this field, and he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the field is white for harvest. You see, in Samaria, they grew barley and grain, and barley and grain go from green to brown. So he's not talking about the physical harvest, just like he's not talking about physical food. So what's happening, what's happening is that the men of Samaria, who would traditionally wear white robes, they're all coming out uh, from the city and toward the disciples. And it's like a sea of people in white robes walking toward them. And what Jesus is doing, he, he's reframing the disciples' view of the city. Right? They were just in the city. They didn't want to go there. Just go get lunch. Don't talk to anybody and get back as quick as you can. But what Jesus is trying to say to them, the mission they're on is the city. And so he's going to reorient their minds and their, heart, and their hearts so that their hearts beat in rhythm with his. Open your eyes. Look. You didn't recognize the mission. It's right in front of you. Open, you. open your eyes. The city is where the harvest is. So these men and women come out and have this conversation with Jesus, and they invite all 12 of the disciples and Jesus back to the city. And they spent two whole days and nights in a city they didn't want to be in probably staying at the Samaritan Holiday Inn, eating at the Falafel House. They were hanging out with people who weren't their people in the neighborhood they shouldn't have even been in. And many Samaritans believe because of the testimony of this one woman. We should never underrate the, uh, the, the, the power of our testimony. And this is the first revival we see recorded in Jesus' ministry in a town with a group of people that most Jewish people, most Jewish people avoided. See, Jesus is realigning the disciples' hearts and minds to the mission. And their hearts are starting to beat in rhythm with his. Why does Jesus love the people of the city so much? Well, look back through the Bible and we'll see that God loved a pagan place called Nineveh so much that he sent a prophet named Jonah who didn't want the people of that city to be saved. God loved the kingdom of Babylon so much that he allowed Daniel to be taken from his hometown as a captive so a guy named Nebuchadnezzar could be reached with the gospel, and the gospel could go into the whole world. God used an orphan named Esther because he loved the king of Persia and the people of Persia so much who needed to know that there was a God who is, who was, and is to come. He wanted a relationship with them. And we see, when we see Jesus as, as king and Messiah, we're going to see our city differently. In fact, you know how much he loves the city that we live in? He's sending you, and he's sending me. In fact, in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul says, do you know that God determined the exact time and place you would live so that people around you would, 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 would seek God and know him because God is not far from each, each and every one of them? <coughs> Friends, there's a thirst in us that God has quenched. <coughs> there's a thirst that God has quenched in us, and if our heart is beating in rhythm with his heart, 
will want to tell everyone that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he came in this world to save sinners. He saved us and he can save you too. Save from what? Well, save from what? Hell. Eternal damnation. Separation from God. And just like heaven is a real place, hell is a real place too. Jesus said that hell was a place of perpetual burning, torment, terrible loneliness. There'll be separation from God with nobody to turn to and nobody to talk to. And people are going to suffer remorse knowing that they had the opportunity to go to heaven with God but turn it down. And it never ends. It's forever and ever and ever. Do we care? Do we care enough? I heard, I think his name was, I can't remember his name now. Uh, but he said, every second, two people die. That means every minute, every minute 120 people gone. By the end of this service, 7,000 people would have left this earth for eternity. By the time we lay our head on our pillow tonight, approximately 150,000 people gone off into their eternal destiny. Do we care enough to do something about it? The most powerful opportunity that the church has to awaken today, to awaken to today, is that we, we have a mission field right in front of us. The fields are ready for harvest. Look up and see. You know, so many times I think we think of a church today as we think of ourselves as an audience. We come, sit, listen to a sermon, go home, come back next Sunday, listen to an audience. I mean, listen to a sermon. But friends, you, we, me, we're not an audience. We're an army. We're the people of God. We're the royal priesthood, the ambassadors, the most important message that could be ever told. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We can't allow eth ethnic and cultural boundaries to keep us from sharing the gospel. People need to realize how detestable their sin and willful disobedience to God is. This is called conviction. Without conviction, there could be no repentance. And without repentance, there could be no salvation. Put your, heart on your, your hand on your heart for a second. I want you to ask yourself the question. God, is my heart beating in rhythm with your heart? The things that break your heart break mine. The things that give me joy give you joy. If our hearts beat in the rhythm with Jesus, we'll experience the glory of God as God uses us as an instrument to reach this world for Jesus. Are you excited about that opportunity? Let's pray. Father, I pray for a, a holy boldness, Lord, that we would... Uh, that we would get comfortable with being uncomfortable, Lord. Father, it, it's, not, 
it's not a suggestion to share the gospel with people, Father. Father, it, 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 it's a command. And I think sometimes we, we get too comfortable. We depend on others to do it, Lord. But, Father, again, I, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. This window of opportunity is closing fast, Father. And people out there are, are thirsty. They're thirsty to hear the gospel, Lord. And many people are going to hell, Father. Your, your word tells us that the road is deep, that the, the, the road is wide, Lord. And there's going to be many good people, many good people in hell. So, Father, help us to step out of our, our, our comfort zone and share the gospel with those in our neighborhood, maybe at work, Father, or at the gym that we go to, Father. So, Father, I, I pray for this holy boldness. And before we leave here this morning, I'd, I'd like to uh, say if there's anyone listening online or anyone here this morning who hasn't accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior yet, maybe today's your divine appointment. Maybe God has orchestrated all the circumstances of your life to bring you here today. I don't know. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart? You get that uneasy feeling in your belly? That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And if, that, if, that's, the, if that's the case, I, I, I pray that you would give your heart to Jesus today. And if you'd like to do that, I'm going to be down here after, after the service, and maybe one or two others can join me down here, and we'd like to, we'd like to pray with you and uh, uh, let, let, let you know what that next step is. Amen.